Coming up today, a couple of Valentine's Day conversations. Why do we love love songs so much? And what's my type? If somebody asks you, you've got a checklist in mind, but you know what? It's probably not really what you like. We'll also get the latest on NORAD and the shooting down of balloons. And with all the focus on fitness, is it true that it's actually less accessible than ever before? We'll find out. We're going to talk about love songs now. The great Eric Clapton doing wonderful tonight. I had to pick a love song, and I think that's probably my favorite love song. But there's other ones. I mean, it's music. So it changes depending on the day. But that one is a good one. I've got some other ones from uh, from the crew here. We'll get into uh, following the interview. But first of all, what is it about love songs? Because we've all got one, probably more than one. They get in there, and we love them. We love love songs. Why? We're going to chat with Brian Fautou with the U of A's Department of Music. Brian, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, is it is is there something more than just, well, it's a really good song? Does it go deeper than that? I think it does. I think the good song component is a big part of it. But I think we can also think of good love songs that we also don't like, that we don't identify that with, that, you know, we kind of have a dislike for as well. So I yes. think it has to be some sort of emotional connection, something that kind of hits us on an individual level. I think with music, often, you know, you kind of identify with it on the one hand, individually, you're kind of, you know, connected with your identity to, to something that is personal or is, is sort of speaks to you, but you also have some sense of it reaching a wider, a wider group of people too. you kind of, you know, reinforce your identity through a more kind of collective or communal experience. I think at the same time, yeah, sorry, go. I think you're right, because it seems like, I mean, the experience is relatively... I don't want to say it's not, you know, like boilerplate and we all feel the same things, but it, it is a universal sort of, you know, love and breakups and all the rest of that stuff. So those songs often feel like they're being written just for you, if you know what I mean. It does. And there's been a lot of study around why certain songs stick with us with respect to memory. And often it's in times of major transitions or shifts, right? You might think about you know, when you're in high school or experiencing yeah. new feelings or emotions, something's different. And, and love gives us that, whether it's the positive aspects of it, you know, falling in love or finding somebody new or, you know, the, the, the sadder aspects. And I don't want to say negative because I think you, you grow a lot in those moments too, but the sadder moments, you know, the more tragic moments, moments of heartbreak, um, those are, those are transformations or transitions. And we tend to remember those moments more and music often communicates those memories. We sort of you know, you've heard a song before and it takes you back to those key moments versus everything in your sort of day-to-day life, your routine. So certain songs hit us at certain times in those ways and they kind of stick with us. And, and, and that kind of helps to make that individual connection that we're talking about. You're absolutely right. That, that's the power of music. It can immediately transport you back to a time and place that, that you'd forgotten all about, but the song will take you there in a second. Is it? Is it? What about the lyrics? I mean, when we're talking about love songs specifically, how important are the lyrics? Like you say, I mean, just the context of the song will, will evoke memories for us, but what about the lyrics? Sometimes some of those really hit home more than others, right? Yeah, they do. I think they're, you, know, you mentioned the universal, universal experience or emotion of something like love. And the lyrics have to allow for some aspect of that, right? You have to be able to define yourself in them. But we also can kind of take, you know, take things and, and run with them in our own way too, right? The songs aren't about us. Sometimes, about us. Sometimes they're, 
you know, love songs written reflexively by an artist about themselves, but we find something in there, a certain lyric or a line that really hits us. And there's ways of making that about you and your experience, even if that isn't the intention, because, you know, it isn't, it's, it's written by somebody else. And sometimes they're imagining a wider audience and thinking about how do we write something that everybody's going to identify with. And sometimes it's more autobiographical and personal, but we can still kind of find ways of accessing it and making it about ourselves, at least with certain songs. I think if it's too closed off or too exclusive, then maybe it doesn't have that same ability to to reach a wider uh, audience. Yeah, you're right. It has to be accessible. I, I'm just taking a look at our text line here, and, and and the takeaway I'm getting here is that love songs really stand the test of time, too. People talking about Jim Croce, um, somebody else, the Righteous Brothers. You know, I picked the old Eric Clapton song. Like, a love song holds up. It doesn't matter when it was recorded. If that's the song you connect with, it's still a great song no matter how many years later, right? I think there are ones that have that perfect combination of being a great song as well as a great love song but we'd be curious for you know everybody to kind of go back through their music collection whether it's digital or cd and, and sort of you know go through all the tracks and see how many love songs are there that we've forgotten about as well right i bet you there is a pile of them that just don't stick with that <laughs> you know it's not a it's not a magic bullet that's going to automatically make the top 10 in the billboard and stick with us forever it still has to be a good song it has to be speaking about something in the moment that is relatable and, and the songwriting has to match the lyrics. And, you know, some songwriters are really good at doing that. Yeah. And, and sometimes, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't hit. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. And, and there's so many. You're right. I mean, we could talk about it for hours. Brian, thank you so much for being here this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That is Brian Fotu. He is an associate professor in the Faculty of Arts at the Music Department at the University of Alberta. This is going to be, um, I was really surprised in reading some of the background for this. If you think about it and somebody asked you, what do you look for in a mate? You'd have a list. You'd have things that you want, right? Or you think you want. That's the key. You, um, you might be completely out to lunch with what actually you want. So on this Valentine's Day, we thought, you know, it might be fun to revisit this study. It's done by the U of T a little while ago, comparing what people think they like in their romantic partners and what they actually like in their romantic partners because they're not always the same thing. In fact, they usually aren't. So to get into this, we're going to chat with Andre Wong. Andre is an assistant professor of psychology at U of T Scarborough. Um, Andre, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a fascinating study. It really is. So help us understand it. To start, define the study. When, when we talk about this, what are you looking into and who did you talk to? Yeah, of course. So maybe I'll give you a little bit of background because when it comes to dating, as you said, you know, people talk about the checklist, right? They have all the qualities they think they want, whether they have a type. Romantic comedies, characters talk about, oh, I want someone who's smart and funny. So my colleagues and I wonder, do these ideas matter? So does how much you think you like intelligence and sense of humor, for example, mean you're more attracted to smart and funny people? So to find out, my co-authors and I recruited over 1,300 participants across four studies. These were 18 to 35-year-olds across gender, sexual identities, race, and ethnicity. So in these studies, we first ask our participants how much they value traits like intelligence and sure. confidence and dominance and trustworthiness, right? Like the whole checklist. 
But then we did is we compared what they thought against how much those traits actually mattered when participants looked at real online dating profiles. And what we found is that how much participants thought they liked these traits had little bearing on how much these traits actually predicted their romantic interest for people in these dating profiles. Those who thought they liked intelligence more, for example, weren't necessarily more drawn <laughs> to smart people. Okay, how, how do you explain that, Andre? How, I mean, we all have this idea of the ideal partner, and you're saying what we think is the ideal partner probably isn't. How, how can we be so disconnected from ourselves in this way? Yeah, that's a great question. And we wondered about this too, right? So one of the factors that my co-authors and I looked at is social context. So the way I like to explain it is this. Let's say you attend a great party and the people we meet there happen to be funny, maybe some funnier than others. You may come away thinking, wow, I really like people with a sense of humor. But in reality, it might not have been the sense of humor that you liked. Instead, it was the party that made you feel good, and you just happened to notice the sense of humor. But now you have these rose-tinted glasses on, right? You had a good time. Yeah. So even if humor wasn't driving your romantic interest, you now think that it does. Whereas if you had gone to a not-so-great party, a sense of humor might not have seemed as important anymore. So in other words, social context is coloring our thinking. That thinking is certainly useful in many ways, but it is no substitute for actual experiences. Interesting. Now, how, what does that mean if, if we're kind of, as you say, um, looking at the wrong things and, and we're you know, a little bit out of touch with what we actually uh, connect with? <laughs> what, what, are, are we limiting ourselves? Like when you go on these dating profiles, are you sort of, you know, as the song says, let the wrong ones in and keep the, wrong, the right ones out? Yeah, I mean, I think that does point to a potential danger, right? Like the checklist you have in your head might be prematurely constraining your dating pool. So when it comes to dating, you know, given that your ideas about what you like might not reflect your actual experiences, maybe go easy on filtering or rolling people out before you get a chance to meet them. You, of course, you, when it comes to dating, you want to trust your instinct for sure. You don't want to force yourself, but also be open, open to possibilities. I think this is especially relevant uh, to perhaps online dating because a date might not seem to check all your boxes on paper, but they might still sweep you off your feet if sure. you give them a chance. Does this extend to other areas of our life? I have to think that it does, right? I mean, it can't be just confined to romantic interests. We probably have these preconceived yeah. notions that apply in other areas. Yeah, exactly. You know, we focused on romantic context in these studies, but yeah, we thought it might apply to any kind of decision-making where we might have ideas about certain qualities. Um, I, you know, recently moved to Toronto, so I thought about, you know, qualities that I want in, you know, apartments I might want to rent, right? Similar issue here. I might think that these factors, like how much light it lets in or, you know, like high ceilings might really matter. But once I go on a tour of the apartment, maybe some other qualities start to emerge and those actually ended up making me feel happy living there. So yeah, I think for many decision-making, we might still see this kind of disconnect between what we think we like versus what we actually like. Interesting text. This listener says, I made a long list of things that I don't want in a man. I'm wondering, do we have, does the, does the same principle apply? We may think these are things that yeah. really are unattractive, but in reality, they're really not that bad. Yeah. Um, so in the list of traits that we gave participants in the study, there were some traits that were 
you know, generally speaking, bad traits, so to speak. So how mean you think they were, sure. how aggressive they were. Um, and there are ones that are more, more neutral. Dominance is sort of middling, right? So some people want a more dominant partner, others less so. Uh, and when we saw that, you know, the kind of positivity or negativity of the trait didn't really matter. So it's not the case that what you think are deal breakers are more deal breakers than what you think are kind of like checklist desirable traits. Uh, but of course, there's more studies and more research we could always do. So, I mean, this you're talking about kinds of things that are happening on a level we're probably not even aware of. So is there a way to guard mm. against getting ourselves trapped into this way of thinking? Yeah, that is a great question. Uh, you might think intuitively, right, that, oh, if there's this, this disconnect, maybe I should pay more attention. Yeah. Um, and I think that is perhaps not the right way to go because, you know, these participants, some of them do spend a long time thinking about this. But our research suggests maybe instead of trying to think your way out toward accuracy, maybe just allow yourself to have more experiences. So, again, going back to the dating example, maybe this means not spending, you know, hours after hours kind of comparing what people look like on paper uh, or, or are like on paper and just actually go out there and to have those experiences. Because once you do, that's where you start to see kind of romantic chemistry, this unique bond that so many people crave actually start to emerge. So if there is some advice I can take from this, it's perhaps getting those experiences is probably the better way to go. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Fascinating work, Andre. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. That is Andre Wong, who is an assistant professor of psychology at the U of T Scarborough. Getting a bit more information about what's going on with uh, the quote-unquote balloons, objects, whatever you want to call them. Anita Anand, our defense minister in Brussels, Belgium this morning, um, talking to reporters saying that trying to find the object that was shot down over the Yukon over the weekend, um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard to find. Anand says the terrain is extremely rugged. It's extremely remote. The temperature is about minus 25 and there's a lot of snow. She said the recovery effort is difficult, but as I said, we have a number of aircraft in the air. We have people on the ground. We have the RCMP. We have the FBI. We have Canadian Armed Forces members all out assisting in the effort of trying to find this recovery. It was also announced that the United States did better than they had first thought they were going to do with recovering some of the debris from the balloon. We know that one was a Chinese surveillance balloon uh, that was shot down off the coast of the Carolinas last weekend. Uh, They got a lot of that. They managed to recover it. Initially, they had said the more sensitive parts, the sensors, the things like that that they were looking for had been broken and only partially recovered, but it sounds like now they've got most of that. So there's some good news there. The other two, uh, not sure, but we're now up to four. As you know, we've been talking about this shot down uh, over the past 10 days now. And uh, yesterday, Canadian Forces Major General Paul Prevost said the last three objects didn't look anything like the first object that we dealt with. Again, the first object was the Chinese surveillance balloon. We know that. The other ones, one's been described as cylindrical. One's been described as octagonal. So we're still waiting to get a little more information. I did hear a Pentagon spokesman yesterday saying that they think there's a possibility, maybe, that they're completely benign and they weren't owned by any government. They were, in fact, commercial property. So 
we're going to have to wait and see. Patience is the word of the day here, but there's a lot of questions about what, how does this suddenly happen? And maybe they've always been up there. We just weren't looking for them. Let's get some insight into exactly how these discoveries were made, how they were handled, and what the procedure typically is. We're going to chat with Peter Bates, who is a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and former political advisor to the commander of NORAD. So he knows of what he speaks. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Hey, not at all. Good morning. So when we talk about the way these four, let's start with, uh, you know, uh, the one over Canada. I think that's the one a lot of people said, well, wait a minute. Why did an American jet have to shoot it down? Why didn't a Canadian jet? Let's just go through when NORAD decides to take action. Well, they don't take the action. They're, they're given the order by whatever government, if it's Canada or the United States. But, but what's the process once an object is detected to the shoot down? How does it work typically? Well, what typically happens is the commander has to decide whether or not the object uh, poses a threat to North America. And you may recall from an earlier interview with General Van Herc earlier in the week, he pointed out that with some of the earlier objects, he could not determine that that was a threat to North America. But after consultation with between the president and the prime minister, we decided to deal with them as a, a danger to flight. Um, so NORAD was, you know, originally designed to detect uh, incoming military objects, high-speed bombers, missiles, things of that nature. Right. Uh, and the radars were optimized to detect those types of objects. So following the the Chinese balloon, uh, NORAD has recalibrated some of the algorithms used on those radars and has been able to detect these other objects. Right. Uh, But let let me stop you there just for a second. So how did the original balloon, how did the Chinese balloon get detected? Because like you say, I mean, that's why we're finding these other objects. But how did the first one get noticed? Well, the first one was huge. Okay. I mean, the, the sensor package was the size of three buses. Um, so that would have, would have certainly shown up on radar. Um, and once they, once NORAD was aware of that particular object, uh, they tweaked the radars a bit to look for others. Gotcha. Okay. And now, and like you say, once they detected that, okay, we've got this balloon and they probably spotted, I mean, some people said they saw it with their naked eye over BC. Yeah, so I think, that, I think that was, that was part of it too. Yeah, exactly. So now they recalibrated and, and that's the reason that, I mean, it's just, they weren't looking for them before. That's why we found three in the last week. It's that simple. Yeah, they weren't looking for it because we didn't um, think that the balloons meandering over the, the airspace of North America posed a, a military threat. Gotcha. Okay. So once they determined that these are something that need to be handled and taken care of and removed from the airspace, that procedure, a lot of people saying, well, why is it American jets? How does that work? Uh, well, what happens is the, the commander and the, the operations center in Colorado Springs will determine um, who is best positioned to respond to that particular uh, object. Um, so there's the Alaska NORAD region, there's the Canadian NORAD region, there's the continental U.S. NORAD region. In this case, the aircraft from the Alaska NORAD region were, were frankly closer to the object and were following it at the time. Uh, as I understand it, our CF-18s from Cold Lake were moving up uh, to join the intercept, uh, but the American aircraft was already there. Right, yeah. So, it's so just... it really depends on, on which resources are, are closer to the object to be investigated and or to be responded to. Um, so this, basically what we've got here is NORAD working exactly as NORAD was designed to work. This is exactly how it's supposed to be done. Yep, exactly. I mean, there are, there are Canadians and Americans working together on the watch floor, uh, depending on, on the shift, um, and what day it might be. It could be a Canadian, uh, in command in the ops center. Uh, it could be an American officer responsible, uh, to let the commander know what's going on and, uh, and to await his decision, his or her decision, I should say. So now the process begins in terms of trying to figure out exactly what these were. Um, 
I mean, that that's that's the other part. I think where a lot of people are sort of like, yeah. okay, these things are up there. They're flying around. How long has this been going on? How many more are there? And what are they? I mean, those are the questions we need answered now, right? Yep. But I think we need, I mean, it, it's important to, to recognize that the four objects all have very different geometries. Yeah. Uh, and we're flying at, at different altitudes. Um, I would not be surprised if at least one of the objects was some kind of meteorological balloon. Uh, and that somebody somewhere is sitting pretty red-faced at the moment. Um, some of them may have been commercial, uh, but we really won't be able to tell more about the objects uh, until they recover some or any of the wreckage. And that's going to be really uh, challenging. Yeah, that's going to be, I mean, by the sounds of what they're talking about, the search in Yukon, it, it's a nightmare. It's, it's, it's going to be, they, they say they may never find it. Well, apparently it's a nightmare in all three cases. I mean, off the coast of Alaska, apparently the wreckage landed on the sea ice. Uh, yeah. So that's going to be a challenge. Uh, in the Yukon, yes, uh, presumably it's going to continue snowing. Uh, so that's going to be tough. And my understanding is the object in Lake Huron uh, dropped into the deepest part of the lake. Might that be part of the reason, uh, Peter, that they decided to delay shooting it down? Is there a possibility that they were studying these while they were still in the air, especially the one that's, you know, we knew about it for a week before it was shot down off the coast of the Carolinas. Would, would it be possible to get some intelligence before shooting it down that you may not get once you do shoot it down? Oh, I think there's, there's no question that uh, they were observing the objects before they fired upon them. Um, they were taking what photos they could. They were looking for any electronic or other emissions from the objects. Uh, and those will all be studied. But they're not going to give you the kind of answers, uh, particularly with regard to where they came from, that you'd get if you actually find right. the wreckage. Um, in terms of unprecedentedness, if that's even a word. We've never done this before, right? We have never actually shot down anything in North American airspace by NORAD. To the best of my knowledge, in the, what is it, 65 years of NORAD's existence, we have never operationally shot anything down over North America. Wow. Pretty historic. However, NORAD, NORAD has been prepared to deal with objects, including derelict objects. You may recall the case some years ago of the American golfer whose airplane Uh, basically went rogue. Um, So NORAD tracked that to determine that it was not a danger to people on the ground or to to flight, uh, and tracked it until eventually, unfortunately, it crashed in the northern United States. Yeah, I do remember that case, yeah. Uh, Certainly for cases like that, NORAD could have responded if necessary. And have. I mean, we've we've scrambled jets before. I know that. It's just a matter of whether or not they've actually taken action. No, they, well, they've, they've taken, it depends on what you mean by action. I mean, during the 80s, obviously, NORAD was involved in the war on drugs. And in those instances, NORAD would, would track incoming drug-bearing aircraft, including one that I believe landed in New Brunswick, uh, and track the aircraft uh, and ba- basically directed law enforcement to meet them when they got to the ground. Wow, okay. I didn't know that. Interesting. All right. But in terms of actual kinetic action firing a weapon, as far as I know, these are the first times that NORAD has done it operationally. I mean, do you anticipate there'll be more? I mean, I guess, is there any way of knowing how many of these things may be up there? And once we get a better understanding, maybe they are benign and we don't need to be taking as much action, or are we going to have to change the way we do things to... Because, I mean, how do you determine if the balloon is a spy balloon or just a weather balloon? Well, part of it involves, I mean, there there needs to be certain, uh, I guess, changes in regulation and the manner in which we we manage our our civilian airspace. Right. Uh, As I said, my expectation is at least one of these objects was a meteorological balloon of somebody's providence. Uh, It's quite possible possible some of the others were commercial or private. Um, They're different geometries, different sizes. Uh, There's been an effort in Canada and the United States for some time to regulate the use of smaller drones, 
um, which NORAD has also had to respond to in the past. Uh, so, yes, there are going to be more of these objects. Uh, obviously, this type of, of surveillance platform, uh, the larger drones have enormous commercial possibilities, agriculture, um, mining, uh, things like um, surveillance of rail and rail, rail and, and road lines to make sure they're in, in good condition and, and whether or not they need maintenance. That can all be done from these types, various types of drones. Uh, and there are going to be more and more of them. In terms of NORAD's readiness, there's been a lot of talk about that and the fact that a lot of things have been neglected with NORAD. Is this, uh, I mean, we know we are doing some strengthening and some building up of NORAD, but are we so far behind that we'll be able to handle, like you say, more and more of this? Um, well, neither neither the United States or Canada have, have invested, uh, in my opinion, adequately in NORAD right. for some time. Yeah. Uh, Minister Nan's announcement last year of the extra billions that will go into NORAD is a good first step. Uh, but certainly the, the radars that we're using uh, are aging. Their ability to discriminate is limited compared to what is possible today. Um, but as we've seen, uh, I mean, the other issue is uh, whether or not we have the aircraft and the weapons required to respond to these types yeah. of situations. Uh, people complain. I mean, certainly the, the, the Rocky Air Force is much smaller than it, than it was in the past. Uh, and as we've seen uh, in Ukraine, uh, the Western world as a whole is uh, surprisingly short of weaponry. We decided we were going to, you know, we weren't going to fight war anymore. Well, uh, it's still out there. Yeah, exactly. And coming to our airspace, at least. Um, Peter, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hey, not at all. Happy to help. Thank you very much. That is Peter Bates, who is a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former political advisor to the commander of NORAD. We put such an emphasis on fitness, right? A lot of people talk about their fitness regimen all the time, and boy, they put it on their social media all the time. You know, how many pictures of people from the gym have you seen, right? Countless pictures of people in the gym, and they're all decked out. They got the headphones on and they got the outfit. They're ready to go. Um, people talk about their fitness class. Little Sarah loves to go to boxing lessons. That's what she's doing for Valentine's Day. But in reality, fitness, um, if you think just back to when you were a kid, it's probably less common now that people are involved in it overall, even though we talk about it a lot, than we were back then. It's, it's tougher to access anyway than it used to be. So to help us walk through why that is, we're going to chat with Natalia Melman Petrozella, an associate professor of history at the New School University in New York City, also the author of Fit Nation, The Gains and the Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. I'm so glad to be here. How are you? I'm great. I'm really good. Uh, you know, when we talk about fitness being more unaccessible than ever, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around because... That's all we hear about from some people, and so many people are involved, and they're all over social media. It seems like it's way more accessible, and everybody's doing it. So help us make sense of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, much of what made me want to write this book is that I realized exercise is everywhere, because as you see it say, people are constantly talking about it. We're being marketed products and clothing and supplements yeah. and all the rest. But if you actually look, at least here in the United States, at who has access to it, it's 
relatively elite. And actually what's been happening here is that we've been cutting funding for physical education and public schools, for, you know, parks and recreation and swimming pools and all these places where it actually could be more accessible. So that kind of got me started on this like 10 year long research project. When did it switch? Like, I mean, it became it became a thing. Right. And it wasn't all that long ago, was it? Yeah, so I mean, I think a big thing that happens is like when you, as you have this country move from being a kind of agricultural and manual labor economy to being a service economy, yeah. that happens in like the 1920s, the 1950s, again, in a really big way. There's this realization that, oh my gosh, people's everyday lives are becoming more and more sedentary. And so they've got to kind of do something to counteract that. And so that's when you start to have these kind of more attention to deliberate exercise. So that's when you see it kind of start to shift that this idea even that exercise is something people should like build into their day but then there's another level to i think what you're talking about which happens starts to happen in the 1960s but really takes off in the 80s 90s and beyond where participating in fitness and making that time in your day becomes more of a like consumer activity than just you know spending time with family or spending time in nature that's really kind of when that happens um so with everything that's out there now, is it just cost? I mean, is that what it is? Is that the barrier? Because like you say, we've got, I mean, there's smoothie stores, there's a yoga studio on every corner, we've got supplement stores. I mean, it's everywhere. Fitness is everywhere you go. Um, so to make it less accessible, is it cost? Is that what we're talking about overall? I think, so cost is definitely part of it. And like, you know, it's so true that we've seen in recent years, the high points and the sort of elite side of the fitness industry reach price points that no one ever imagined I think was possible in terms of what people are willing to pay for. But that being said, the lower end is thriving too. Like low cost budget exercise is having a moment and there is quite a bit of free stuff available online. I think as, I think cost is definitely one thing. Like there should be more stuff that's just like free and funded by the state and the right of everybody who is, you know, alive today to participate in. But I think just as much as cost, like there are other things that are related to economic inequality, but aren't as clear as like the money in your pocket. For example, if you live in a neighborhood where you don't have access to green space, like that's a real issue. If you live in a body, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, your opportunities to go running outside and feel like that's safe are much more limited. If you're someone who doesn't have a lot of control over your working hours, like you could be on a shift tonight and then one tomorrow morning, like that makes it a lot harder to exercise. Same with your journey to work. If you have to drive or trans or commute far away, if you don't have childcare, if you yeah. don't have indoor space, we saw that in the pandemic. All of those things are related to inequality, but they're not as clear as like, here's 20 bucks, yeah. go join a gym. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, and barriers are barriers. You're absolutely right, Natalia. It yeah. doesn't matter. Um, what's the fix then? I mean, how, I mean, how do we do that? Yeah. Such a great question. So I, this is when sometimes I'm like, well, I'm a historian, not a future forecaster. <laughs> but I do, I do think something that's so important is that we've got to think really more expansively, both in the public sector and the private sector, about working together to really create more accessible opportunities for exercise, but also opportunities for people to exercise on their own terms. Like people often ask me like, oh, do you want to go back to the PE programs of like the 1950s and 1960s, which were more robust? And I'm like, I actually don't. Like I would love federal support 
for physical education. But those were really alienating. These were like a very hierarchical, you know, let's get in line by who can climb the rope faster. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to go back to that. And I actually think the industry has done a great job of creating lots of different fun things, whether it's dancing or CrossFit or whatever it is. And so I think we need to have public private partnerships that take some of that innovation, but make it accessible at your community recreation center, at your public school, in places where not just those who can afford it um, participate. Um, is that about a function of the way that we grow up? Like I'm, I'm like 51. And I remember when I was a kid, like a lot of the things that you're talking about, unstructured sort of just having fun and fitness just being, you know, not such a, a focus thing. It's just sort of opening it up and being in the green space and playing in the playground. The kids don't do that anymore, Natalia. It's just, it's, yeah. I mean, we, we, we don't have our kids involved like that anymore. Yeah, something I think that is so like hard to wrap our heads around is that we both have an epidemic of sedentary yeah. among children. And, you know, that's connected to all sorts of things, video games and social media and all that. But then at the other end, we also have like a hyper professionalization and specialization yes. around sports. Like, and that is another part of, I think, youth uh, fitness, which can seem the opposite. But I think actually both of those things contribute to the same problem that for the vast number of kids, in the middle, there's not that many opportunities to like just have fun and yep. play pick up basketball or do a program that's once or twice a week and that includes kids who maybe aren't that agile with ones who are more skilled. Like we segment that out so quickly. And so, yeah, I do think that this all begins with children. And that's why, ironically, even though I hated physical education more than anything when I was a kid, I think that the schools are a really, really good place to start this because that's the place when most kids are going to encounter structured exercise in one form or another. And so many of them find it alienating, either because it's a waste of time, it's like not that fun, or because it's really, you know, traumatizing because they're not skilled. And there are some really great physical educators out there. This is not a knock on the profession at all. I just want more resources and more attention to that profession to do more with that really valuable time. Because I couldn't is, agree more. I couldn't agree. Yeah. You're absolutely yeah. right. And Natalia, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Natalia Melman Petrozola, who, uh, Petrozella, who uh, has done some work around, you know, why... I mean, half half of Americans are, are have an obesity problem. Half, and the other half are on social media talking about how they're in the gym all the time. But it, I, I just I think it's she makes a really good point about sport becoming so specialized, right? Like um, as a kid, we just used to go and just a bunch of kids in the neighborhood play pickup baseball or soccer or football or street hockey or whatever it is. And I can't think of the last time I saw kids playing street hockey. And it used to be everywhere, you know. And our little group would play against another little group and. It just doesn't seem to happen as much. It's all very structured. It's not, kids will just, you know, how do you occupy a kid? Give them a ball. They'll play. Kids will play if you just give them a chance to just go out and play. But a lot of it's really, really structured. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.